The reading is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, and chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. For it is impossible to restore again the repentance those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the godness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away since on their own they are crucifying again the Son of God and are holding him up to contempt. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp and bear the abuse he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. This reading is from Leviticus 16, 3, 5, 10, 26, 28. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. The one who sets the goat free for Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward may come into the camp. The bull on the sin offering and the goat on the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the only place shall be taken outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be consumed in fire. The one who burns them shall wash his clothes 
and bathe his body in water, and afterward may come into the camp. If you were here last week, you will have heard Luke telling us about the personality typing system known as the Enneagram. And Luke reflected on how his particular personality as an Enneagram type one, or perfectionist as they're sometimes known, means that he struggles to take proper rest because the, the knowledge that nothing is ever quite good enough drives him to always want to do that little bit more, to make things that little bit better. And so Luke challenged himself and all of us to try and make time for periods of rest in our lives as we seek to live faithfully before God. Just that I'd check in for a moment on that and ask us the question, have, have we managed that this week? Hmm. Well... I don't know if you'd come across the Enneagram before last week's little introduction. My guess is some of you will know it and some of you won't. Uh, it, for some of you, it may help you to know that it's sort of similar to the Myers-Briggs personality type indicator, but also a bit different. Uh, whereas Myers-Briggs draws on Jungian theory and presents itself as more of a psychological tool, the Enneagram is a bit more mystical and a bit less scientific in its method. Uh, there are all sorts of theories around about how the Enneagram's uh, idea of there being nine core personality types uh, originated, and everyone from the Desert Fathers to Sufi Islam gets a credit in developing the system along the way. The interesting thing for me, with both Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram, and I first came across Myers-Briggs and I was training for ministry, it's used a lot in uh, ministry training circles and also I think a lot in um, personnel development professionally as well. The Enneagram slightly less so. Uh, but the interesting thing for me is not really whether their scientific methods or origin stories stand up to scrutiny. But the interesting thing for me is whether they help us to tell a helpful story about ourselves in a way that aids our self-understanding, and makes our relationships with others better. After all, a lot of the stories in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, don't stand up to scientific or historical scrutiny either. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't tell them and draw helpful lessons from them for how we're going to live our lives today. So, in Enneagram terms, if Luke self-revealed last week as a type 1 perfectionist, you may be wondering what I am. And I am going to come clean as a type 3 performer. <laughs> so I initially uh, arrived at this conclusion by doing a little online questionnaire, which helped me to get an insight into which of these nine personality types I might report as. But the proof of the pudding is always in the eating. And the best advice is not to rely just on answering a few questions on some website but rather to read the more detailed descriptions that are available of the different types and just begin to get a feel for which one fits. And what I have discovered is that the point where you really know your type is when you read about the negative side of your personality. And it suddenly feels as if someone is staring deep into your soul 
exposing all of your hidden vulnerabilities, which you thought were entirely hidden and nobody would ever guess them, and then there they are in black and white. Or to put it another way, in terms that begin to take us into our sermon theme of the vulnerable Jesus, it is when we are most vulnerable that we are most fully known. It is when we are most vulnerable that we are most fully known. The nice stuff of the Enneagram description of the type three is lovely to hear, as it is with all of the different types. Apparently, and I quote, I'm success-orientated, image-conscious, and wired for productivity. And I'm motivated by a need to be, or appear to be, successful and to avoid failure. Well, that's okay, I think. Here's what they say in a little bit more detail about people who report as type 3 performers, and I'm sure I'm not the only one here. Um, healthy type 3s have transcended the goal of merely trying to look good and are moving towards being known and loved for who they are, not for what they accomplish. They love to set goals, rise to challenges and solve problems, but their self-worth is not tied to these things. Yeah, I can own that. That's very much how I'd like you all to see me, please. What happens if we uh, take the positivity down a notch? So that's from healthy three to what they describe as average three. Average threes push to overachieving, spending too much time at work or the gym, or maybe in my case, the pool. They, love to, they see love as something to be earned. They're confident in their abilities, but also constantly worrying that a poor performance will uh, cause them to lose standing in other people's eyes. Well, ouch but also to an extent, yes. Let's take it down another notch to what they describe as an unhealthy three. Unhealthy threes find failure unacceptable, which renders them unable to admit mistakes and causes them to behave as though they're superior to others. They may tell others fabricated stories about themselves and their accomplishments in order to maintain their image, and at their worst, unhealthy threes can be petty, mean, and vengeful. And now I feel very vulnerable and exposed, which is not what a type 3 performer wants to feel at all, take it from me. This all seemed like a very good idea in my study when I was planning it, particularly given that some of the feedback we've had about our Sunday mornings has indicated that it's helpful when the preacher shows their vulnerable side from time to time. Honestly, I'm having my doubts right now. <laughs> and yet, it is when we are at our most vulnerable that we are most fully known. And anyway, I don't believe that I'm the only person in the room to have a fear of failure. Just as we all needed to hear Luke's challenge last week to take some rest, I wonder if this week we can hear a challenge to reflect on our shared fear of failure and how it makes us react. So what, I wonder, are you afraid of? What failure are you afraid of? A failed marriage? Failing as a parent? Failing to be a good friend? Failing to do all the things you've said you'll do? Failing your exams? Failing to achieve your life goals? Failing to hold down a job? Failing to be liked? Failing to avoid sin? Failing to stand up for what you believe in? I could go on and on and on, couldn't I? 
And that's just individually. What about us as a church, as a community who gather together in this place? What failures are Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church afraid of? Do we look around us at our large building with an empty gallery and whole pews with no one sat in them and feel that we are failing? Do we fear failing to be able to afford to take care of our beautiful building over the next 20 or 30 years? Do we fear failing to care for one another? Do we fear failing to be the people, the community that we think we should be? Do we fear letting Jesus down? Finding our collective points of fear of failure can be very vulnerable, particularly for those of us whose personalities are more focused around success and achievement. But I'll say it again. It is when we are most vulnerable that we are most fully known by God. And so we come to the vulnerable Jesus, In our series, looking at how the book of Hebrews offers us a range of different ways of encountering Jesus. If you've missed out on this series, you can catch up via our website on the podcasts, looking at lots of different presentations of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. And this week, our series invites us to encounter Jesus in vulnerability. Our readings from Hebrews today take us to the place of crucifixion, to the place of abandonment, to the place of Jesus' greatest weakness. And they invite us to identify with Jesus in his moment of vulnerability, knowing that he identifies with us in our own weakness. And I could just stop the sermon there, I suppose. We've reflected on our personal and shared fears and vulnerabilities, and we've heard from Scripture that our weaknesses are met in the weakness of the cross as Jesus draws near to us in our failure and sin to forgive us and restore us, allowing us to draw near to him as he draws near to us. We could just stop and go on from here to pray for ourselves and for others, particularly for those who find themselves weak and vulnerable, and that would be an okay thing to do. But if we did stop now, we would, I think, only be understanding part of what Hebrews is wanting us to hear about the vulnerable Jesus. Because, you see, there is another side, a very dark side, to the human experience of failure and weakness and vulnerability. It was there in that final sentence of the description of an unhealthy Enneagram type 3 that I read earlier. Did you notice it? At their worst, unhealthy 3s can be petty, mean, and vengeful. Or to put it another way, we love to find someone to take the blame for our failure. If we are afraid of failing, then when we do fail, as we all do, we can be highly motivated to shift the responsibility for that failure onto someone else. We will look for someone to blame. And the person who is most likely to get the blame for our failure 
is someone who's even more vulnerable than we are. It's the way it works, isn't it? I'm talking here, of course, about the uh, universal desire that we all share to scapegoat others, to take our sins, our failures, our lack of success, and put the guilt for that onto another so that then they can be driven away from us into the wilderness, taking with them the culpability that should rightfully still lie with us. And our passages from this morning about the vulnerable Jesus being crucified outside the city walls are a clear reference to our second reading we had from the book of Leviticus, where the question of how to address the problem of sin is discussed. In the Levitical law code, there was this provision, you see, for communal and individual guilt to be dealt with in, in two ways, both involving animals. Firstly, for individual sin, you might sacrifice an animal, such as a dove or a bull or something, pouring its blood onto the altar before God and then burning its body outside the city wall. And this destruction of something precious and living symbolized the seriousness of the consequences of sin and the costly commitment of the person seeking forgiveness. That's kind of the, the mechanism in the Levitical law code for dealing with personal sin. The second way of dealing with guilt that Leviticus offered was to do with communal guilt. And this involved a ritual of putting the sin of the community onto a goat and then driving that animal out of the camp into the wilderness. It's what we call the scapegoat. Just as an aside, did you know that the word scapegoat was invented by William Tyndale? He was translating the Bible into English in the 1520s. He'd already done the New Testament and had moved on to the Old. And he got to this passage uh, from this morning and he was struggling to work out how to translate the Hebrew of Leviticus 16, 8 to 10. Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it so that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. And Tyndale really didn't know quite what all this to Azazel thing was about. He wasn't certain if the term referred to the wilderness to which the goat was sent, or to some supernatural power that resided in the wilderness, uh, such as a desert demon or, or the devil. In the end, Tyndale took the decision that he was going to interpret this strange little Hebrew word, Azazel, as a corruption of two other Hebrew words, Ez Ozel which meaning the goat that departs or the goat that escapes. So he coins the frame, phrase the escape goat, the scapegoat, which became the vehicle by which the sins of the Israelites were sent out of the camp. Here's how Tyndale ended up translating this passage. And Aaron cast lots over two goats, one lot for the Lord and another lot for a scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell to scape, he shall set alive before the Lord to reconcile with and let him go free into the wilderness. And that's it. That's where scapegoat comes from. It was a translation decision by William Tyndale. He invented the word. 
These days, of course, scapegoating has developed a meaning well beyond this 15th century, uh, 16th century translation of the book of Leviticus and has come to mean the act of holding a person or a, a group of people responsible for the specific problems that exist within the community at large. So, for example, the Nazis scapegoated the Jews for the economic situation faced by the German nation in the aftermath of the First World War. Or, to bring it up to date a little bit, there is a strong tendency around at the moment to blame migrants, in kind of a blanket term, for rising crime rates, a lack of jobs and pressure on the welfare state. Controlling immigration was the number one popular factor in the Brexit vote, and Trump's long-promised war with Mexico was a key part of his election campaign. Scapegoat them, keep them out, and we'll all be better. That's the mechanism. And we scapegoat the other for problems that we all share. We seek to put them out the camp, beyond the wall, outside the city, to rid ourselves of our guilt at our own failure to be the people or the nation that we wanted to be. If we can blame the other, we can absolve ourselves, at least for a while. So, who do we blame for our failures? Who do we use to offload ourselves of our responsibilities? When you look at the empty pews, who do you hold accountable? Well, here I'm going to use a word which I promised myself I'd never use from the pulpit. Don't worry, it's not that bad, although it might be. I think the passages for this, this morning do demand it. And that word is the word backslider. When I was growing up, anyone who used to come to church but had stopped was referred to as being a backslider. They had, I was told, fallen away from the faith. They'd let the side down. They'd let Jesus down, and worst of all, they'd let those of us who still attended down. It was kind of the worst thing you could do. All other sins could be confessed and forgiven. Backsliding was the unforgivable sin. And our passage from Hebrews 6 was used to justify this. After all, it says... It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. But then Hebrews goes even further. These backsliders are apparently on their own crucifying again the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. I mean, wow, it couldn't really get any worse for them, could it? Don't be like one of them, Simon. Don't be a backslider. It sounds like the preacher to the Hebrews was pretty upset that some of his congregation had walked out on him. Yeah, I get that. It also sounds like he knew exactly where to lay the blame for their absence. Blame those who have gone. Blame those who are no longer there. Scapegoat them. So you don't feel guilty about those who have backslidden. Make it their fault. Or at least that's how I was always taught to read this passage. But what if there is another way of coming at this? 
You see, we talk a lot about the importance of church as a safe space. It is important to a church like Bloomsbury, which values its commitment to the marginalised and the excluded, that we embody a safe place for people to belong, particularly those who have been made unwelcome elsewhere. So whether we're talking ethnicity, gender, sexuality, age, social status, one of our core values as a church is that we want to be a safe and welcoming place for those who have been deemed unwelcome elsewhere within the Christian community. We are a place where the vulnerable can find a home, aren't we? There are people here today who have left other communities of faith because they were unable to belong there. And I don't think the blame for an inability to belong to any particular faith community lies primarily with the individual who leaves. I think it lies with the community as a whole. Blaming the person who has left, labelling them a backslider, taking their personal feelings, failings sorry, and magnifying them to the point where they absorb the failings of everyone is just scapegoating. It's the avoidance of communal responsibility. I'm sure that those of you who have felt that you've had to leave unwelcoming congregations elsewhere and have found a home here will know that the story that the congregation you've left have probably blamed you for leaving. We must be careful that we don't fall into the same trap here at Bloomsbury that we can more easily identify happening elsewhere. There are those who have left Bloomsbury. There will be those who leave us in the future. Some of them will go well and for good reasons and will go with our blessing and our love. Some will go badly. But we mustn't fall into the trap of making ourselves feel better by offloading our own responsibility, our own failures as a community, onto those who no longer journey with us. The thing is, I do feel guilty when my beloved church is not the kind of church that someone else feels they can belong to. I hate being told that we're not inclusive enough, not welcoming enough, not accessible enough, despite our best efforts. And the temptation to get cross and to offload our anger and guilt onto the other who has left is always before us. But, and here's the crucial thing we all need to hear, none of us are called to stay in our safe places. We're not called to make our community a safe place with high walls that keep out the scary people who are not like us, whoever they may be. Rather, we need to realise that Jesus is not just here with us inside our camp. He's outside the wall, beyond the border, being crucified again and again and again for those who have not yet found a home in him. As Hebrews says, Jesus suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. Whatever boundary we erect around ourselves to keep ourselves safe, Jesus is beyond it. And we are called to go there too. Listen, Hebrews continues, let us then go to him outside the camp and bear the abuse that he endured. For here we have no lasting city. We are looking for the city that is to come. And here's the irony of the scapegoat, the one who is made to carry the sins of the many. 
when they get into the wilderness, they meet there the one who is the ultimate scapegoat for all people. The scapegoat that is put out into the wilderness to go and be with Azazel discovers that Azazel is the crucified Messiah being crucified again and again and again in the wilderness for those who have been put out of the community of faith. Jesus is not in the camp. He's not in the city. He's not in a Christian community of safety. He's in the wilderness as vulnerable as he can be, arms wide on the cross, welcoming those who have been sent there in all their weakness and failure and vulnerability. So if as a church we want to meet and encounter the vulnerable Jesus, if as individuals we want to meet Jesus in our vulnerability, then we are called to be those who go to him beyond our established places of safety. We're called to let go of our established norms, our dearly held beliefs, our sacred practices. We're called to set aside our safety, to risk our reputations, to question our presuppositions. If we genuinely desire to be a Christ-focused community, then our focus has to shift because Christ is not in our midst. Rather, he is beyond whatever boundary of faith or praxis or belonging we have erected around ourselves for our own safety. And he is in the wilderness of uncertainty, vulnerability and weakness. So, and I appreciate this may be a controversial statement to utter in a church like Bloomsbury. Maybe it isn't our job as Christians to create safe and welcoming community to which the gratefully vulnerable scapegoats from other communities can come and find refuge. Because by that model of church, the power will always remain with those of us who have the privilege of being the gatekeepers. What if instead we are called to look for Jesus beyond ourselves, beyond our boundaries, to go out of the camp into the wilderness to meet him? to see who he is drawing to himself out there in the wilderness. And what if the solution to the empty pews and our sense of failure is not to blame those who've left, but rather is to learn to see Jesus out there, beyond the glass wall that divides us from them, to go and find him where he is, drawing the world to himself in love? What if the call for us is to make the journey from our own place of communal safety into the wilderness of vulnerability, as we learn to love those for whom Christ is crucified again and again and again. It's a call to vulnerability, friends. Standing up and owning up to the unhealthy side of being a type three is merely the beginning of this journey. But, hear this, it is when we are most vulnerable that we will be most fully known by God. Let us pray. All-powerful God, you sent Jesus, who left behind position and status to become vulnerable and defenseless. He became human, sharing in all that life brings which also meant putting himself into the hands of willful and selfish humanity. 
we have learned that his suffering outside the city gate was in order to sanctify and save that very same humanity. We pray for all those officially described as vulnerable. We know these people are often despised or rejected by society. They may make us feel inadequate or impatient because we don't know how to deal with them. And we show this response in our disregard or even outright rejection of them. We also bring before you this morning the elderly and the terminally ill, particularly those whose capacity to think and move has been impaired by age or disease. We ask that they may receive loving treatment from those who care for them, whether in their homes or in an institution. We pray too for children just setting out on their lives. We pray that they may be able to live positive and fulfilling lives. We ask that those who care for them may be fair in their dealings, always having the child's well-being at the heart of their relationships. And we pray for those who've been abused, that they may find a way to cope with what has happened to them. We pray too for the abusers, that they may find another way to live, seeking forgiveness for what they have done. We pray for those who have no home, whether they be refugees, asylum seekers, or those who've lost home, a job or family, and have ended up on the streets. Keep them safe from exploitation and despair. May those in authority find lasting ways to provide for their needs and show us what part we can play in supporting them. We pray for those who are victims of war and civil unrest. We think of the many places in the world where normal life is impossible because of the fighting and destruction that surrounds them. We think particularly of the Middle East, of Syria and the ongoing conflict there. And we pray too that a peaceful solution may be found for Israel and Palestine. We thank you for the release yesterday of the teenage girl Ahed Tamimi, but we remember the more than 300 who are still often illegally in Israeli prisons. We bring before you also the situation of the Bedouin village, Khan al-Ahmar, which is under threat of demolition by the Israeli authorities. We pray for all who are lonely, desperate, and who cannot find their way in an increasingly busy and complex world. We pray for those who do not belong with us, who are different in some way and therefore excluded from our social circles, maybe from a different ethnic or religious group, maybe a different sexual orientation, social class, or level of intellect. Help us to accept each other, 
to recognize that you have made us all in your image and that we are all of equal value in your kingdom. And finally, let us pray for ourselves. We probably do not usually think of ourselves as the vulnerable, yet each of us carries vulnerability. We may not obviously belong in the categories described by legal, legal or civil definitions, but deep inside, we all have hidden places, emotional or physical conditions which make us vulnerable, defenseless, at risk. We pray for ourselves, that we may recognize this is not something to be ashamed of, but is part of our humanity. As we reflect on our vulnerability, help us also to recognize the vulnerability in those around us. And may we respond to each other with understanding and empathy. And now as we prepare for the week ahead, give us the strength to go to that same Jesus who is outside the camp. And may we too be ready to bear the abuse he endured as we attempt to identify with the vulnerable and seek to bring the love of Jesus to our hurting world. We pray all this in the name of the one who was and is continuing to be crucified, who is continually being held up to contempt, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>